bonds have been in a 40-year favorable market to own bonds. That's now changed. Anybody managing a bond fund now has only experienced the positive about being a bond fund manager. This is a new paradigm for them. And old habits die hard. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I've not sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market. And you know what? I just don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I'm a hodler. You're a hodler, right? Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Compass Mining. And you know what? They are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of theirs, and I am now mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for three months now. I've already paid off one of my S19s, and I'm close to paying off the second one. It is so good to be back mining. And you know what? I just really love these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do everything else for you. If you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up is BlockFi, and you can now earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin when you sign up with BlockFi, as they have recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card is the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. You can also earn 2% in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend and you can also get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership. But please do make sure you check out the terms for this. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to blockfi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash P-E-T-E-R. And next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since way back in early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, yep, I'm still using that bad boy now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Greg, good to see you again, man. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Peter. Man, I would have you on the show whenever you want to come on the show. Uh, okay. It's uh, good to do it in person. Yes. We're back out recording. You happy with your, you got your buddy. Peter that Schiff is there. something else, guys. Thank you for, uh, just for full disclosure. I, uh, I, I didn't bring uh, the photo of Peter, but uh, Peter Schiff we're talking about, but uh, I'm, I'm much, uh, much appreciative of having him at the table with he, us. You're going to be able to keep your cool. 
I think we uh, did okay the last time, right? We, I mean, that I was so. uh, that was a, a good experience. Um, the highlight of it for me was basically when he said he didn't care about being a fiduciary responsible risk manager. And, uh, you know, that's not what you want to hear if you're one of his uh, unit holders. That being said, uh, he's a good marketer. Let's give him that. And, yeah. um, and you know what? I did see something afterwards, uh, from his son, his son, uh, not blowing him up, but he did, uh, he did text me privately a DM and mm-hmm. said, do you think I'm being too harsh on my dad? Wow. And I just basically <laughs> said, look, kid, all I know is your dad and you are special and don't let something like Bitcoin destroy a relationship. That's just, that would be dumb. So. It's so funny watching them go back and forth against each other. I dread the day my son comes on and starts ripping me and everyone supporting him. That is interesting. I wonder if I'd be cheering it if that's how I wanted it to be set up, right? Yeah. Let's just say Peter is that smart, which I'm not going to say he's not. Imagine this is the plan. Could be. And if that's the plan, he's doing a magical job of it, right? Well, shame for his clients though. That is has not been a concern of his for the last 10 years, clearly. Um, You know, imagine if he had put the 1% of the portfolio in to Bitcoin when he was first introduced to it. He'd be the best performing gold fund manager or hard money manager ever in the history because that it's up, you know, 10,000 times, which would mean that he'd be up tenfold, 10,000%, so tenfold on the one percent uh sorry his whole fund would be up tenfold just on a one percent allocation unreal the the idea of a hard money fund is pretty cool where it'd be mixed assets okay they're doing it in canada Uh okay so one of the funds that's going to be marketed in canada now is exactly that is a an etf that holds a portion of bitcoin and a portion of gold and probably another sleeve that'll allow certain other discretionary hard assets could even be a real estate portion of, of the fund. Yeah. Do you think, is it a fund that will rebalance? So not certain of the technicalities involved, but a lot of these funds can have discretion and that's how the manager charges a higher fee, right? If they have discretion, they argue that it's an actively managed fund and therefore you have to pay a higher uh, management fee. But uh, then it becomes a question whether it's a closed-end fund or an ETF. If it's, a, if it's fixed on the asset base, then the ETF is easy to get. Right. Well, listen, we're here to talk about bonds again. We're sure. always talking about bonds, but we'll sure. talk about some other things. We might okay. talk about some mining and some other stuff. But uh, I want to do another kind of 101 on bonds just because I want to talk about the volcano okay, bonds, perfect. the El Salvador volcano bonds. So I just want to reintroduce people to what they are, how they work, because okay. – the current treasury bonds uh, you've been very critical of. You think anyone who's buying that is a moron right now. I saw you say that with Lynn, and uh, I would, I do say that within a soundbite. There's people that trade them, mm-hmm. and a guy that I met actually at Mark Moss's uh, at Mark Moss's um, event a couple of weeks ago, Stephen Van Meter, and he absolutely is a bond bull but he is a bond bull for a specific event that I believe Bitcoin will far outperform bonds in that event. And Bitcoin wouldn't have the downside if that event doesn't occur. And 
you know, let's put it this way. You can trade a bond. He freely admits he will not own a 30-year bond for the next 30 years. And that's what I'm making, I'm critical of. A pension fund that holds a bond, like a 30-year maturity bond, that will hold that bond for the next 30 years. Then we know for certainty that their return will be what the current yield is right now, call it 2%, okay? Who will own a bond for 30 years and earn an IRR, internal rate of return, of 2% annually? I wouldn't, especially when inflation is 6%, right? I'm guessing the only people who will are the people who are mandated to, and that's all they can Correct. own. Correct. Well, some there's certain funds that are, yeah, absolutely just bond funds, and that's all they can own. Uh, a pension fund will be a mixture of bonds and equities, as you know, um, and those are fixed weightings within that pension uh, allocation. So, and it takes a long time to change those allocations. So the traditional 60-40 model, which 60% equities, 40% bonds, to change that to something like 60-40, sorry, 60-20-20, where 20 would be alternative investments and and, uh, potentially Bitcoin, literally takes years and years. And there's uh, the the trustees of the fund that have to be convinced of it and then the consultants of the fund have to come in and endorse that they're not doing anything reckless with the uh, the pensioner's money. It's not an easy process. So absolutely, over time, those antiquated 60-40 allocations will change, but they don't happen quickly. Okay, so let's, let's just go through the, the basic steps. Let's remind people what a bond is, sure. who issues them, yep. and who buys them. Perfect. Um, A bond is a debt instrument, which means the borrower is signing a contract with a lender that establishes a maturity or a term to maturity of the contract and an interest coupon that is traditionally paid semi-annually, twice a year. That interest coupon adjusts the contract essentially for the risk of the borrower. So, Who borrows? Governments. In the case of the U.S. Treasury, the 10-year U.S. Treasury at around 1.5% right now is the quintessential risk-free rate for the world, okay? The reason it's risk-free for the world is because people will say, well, European bonds have a lower yield than U.S. Treasury yields. That's true, but if you translate them back into U.S. dollars, always start in the same currency, you'll see that the U.S. Treasury is the lowest borrower in the world, with the exception of a couple of basis points here and there. Always look at bonds in the same currency to get a feel for what the coupon needs to be in that currency to reward the lender for the perceived credit quality of the counterparty. So for example, just to, and to clear this up, let's say Peter McCormick came with a 10-year bond issue in US dollars and the US Treasury was one and a half percent. What do you think you would have to pay in an open market transaction to borrow $10 million, Peter? And I'm going to guesstimate six and a half percent. Why six and a half? Because Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy, borrowed at six and one eighth percent. So I'm going to say you're riskier than Michael Saylor, at least, you know, at least seven eighths of a percentage point. We're, give we're going to give you, we're going to, sorry, we'll, yeah, we'll give you, we'll give you 7%. We'll, we'll say 7% and you would borrow. And then, you know, you look down the line and there's, you know, various credit ratings for the counterparties. These credit ratings are assigned by 
S&P and Moody's as a subjective evaluation of the credit risk. So you'll get uh, different countries will have different ratings, different corporations will have different credit ratings. And I spent my life in the junk bond market, which was credits that are more risky than the typical borrower. Uh, They're not Uh, they're not as risky as investing in the equities of that company because bonds have priority of claim, meaning unless the bonds are worth a hundred cents on the dollar, the equity of the same company is worth zero in a restructuring. So yes, I was a junk bond trader, but the funny thing I would always tell people is, okay, pejoratives aside, you're a super junk equity investor then, right? If the bonds are junk, the equity is super junk and lots of people buy the equities of super junk companies. That's okay. Just remember, there's a price for everything. And a junk bond company will have to pay a higher yield on their contract, everything else being equal, because they are higher risk of default. Right. Okay. So the U.S. is seen as uh, the most trustworthy issuer Correct. of bonds. And not, not only trustworthy, they are the biggest. They are the most liquid. They have the, big, the world's biggest economy, right? So there's uh, that Uh, Absolutely. And the world basically functions on a U.S. dollar. So there's always liquidity in U.S. dollars. Right. So the U.S. will issue new bonds, which people may buy. They have to buy them because there's no choice, right? In a debt spiral, D-E-B-T spiral, which we are currently experiencing, meaning it's expanding, every single new bond issue is the result of an old bond issue maturing and the new one has to replace the old one together with new borrowing that's taking place. Is that to pay the principal? Correct, sir. So that, that let's just say a bond 30 years ago. 30 years ago, less 20 days, a 30-year treasury bond comes due. It, it was now a 20-day obligation because it was issued 30 years ago, less 20 days. Yep. In 20 days, it will have matured. Well... The treasury needs to pay that off with new borrowing. Isn't it funny? So a bond issue never actually matures. It actually rolls over. Rolls over. Okay. And that's the key. So every single auction that takes place is not really anything but the debt balloon refinancing itself. The key though, that everyone needs to understand, that debt balloon is growing organically just because of the interest coupon on that debt balloon being bigger than the growth rate of the economy. Right, okay. And that is key. And so when, when a bond rolls over, really, I mean, it, it's, it's term ends, they issue a new bond to pay the principal Correct. of the previous bond Correct. holder. But, Add a but, new coupon. But the coupon will likely change. Well, a number of things will change for the calculation of the coupon. The most that everyone's worried about is the inflation expectations. But my argument is, that more uh, more issues or more investors will take issue with the credit quality because no country can fund themselves indefinitely. The U.S. will be the last fiat-issuing com- country to fail, but it will fail. And that is not something I want to happen. And that is why we need to take precautions and, you know, some very smart people out there trying to design a parallel system where you will have fiat obligations as well as a Bitcoin standard. Okay, so you have the rollover, but is there also the issuance or the expansion of the number of bonds? 
the number of bonds potentially, Peter, but what really happens now is they do big benchmark issues. So they try and consolidate borrowing. Uh, so it's not really the number of bonds, just it's the, it's the cumulative total of the outstanding debt. Yes. And this is where we get into one of the issues of uh, expansion of uh, the money supply. Is yes. that Explain me if this is correct. But every bond has to be bought but not, there is no buyer for every bond. So the US government themselves ends up buying the own bo- their own bonds they've issued. So they Correct. print money to do this. Correct. This is the debt cycle. That is largely it, true. Yeah. That is largely true. That is correct. Okay. So interesting. Okay. And then just as a reminder for me to understand okay. is that one of the tricky problems with raising the yield is that all bonds are liquid. So you could buy a bond, but you can trade it at any yes, point. Sir. So it to somebody else. Yes. And so that's where you get your yield curve from. So if they raise, if they issued a new bond, say a 7% one to, to, uh, uh, to cover for inflation now, that is going to reduce the value of all outstanding bonds with a lower yield. Wow. That's an interesting concept. They would never issue a bond with a 7% coupon. Because it would destroy the rest of the bonds. Largely, yes, but think about it. If if the market is charging them one and a half percent for a ten year bond right now, and that's a fluid market, they know that the next auction they only have to pay another one and a half percent to issue another ten year bond. Okay, and that yield curve is well defined. Now, if they came out and said we're issuing at seven percent, first of all, they're paying way too much. Okay, and secondly, the price of that bond would cause all the other bonds to crater, but that bond itself would still trade at probably a two and a half percent yield. So it would be trading at one hundred and sixty dollars. And all the other bonds would be trading at like $60. Okay, it's just bond math. I don't want to get too too. No, that's uh, fine. But but when. Because historically, yes, there are bonds that have traded at very high yield. Oh, no question. When I started, yeah. bonds were trading, 10-year U.S. Treasuries were 14%. So, but it feels, therefore, like the, the bond market is, is a race to zero. It has been in the past because inflation expectations have been reduced so much that why were bonds trading in the late 80s at a double-digit yield? Because Volcker hadn't snuffed out. That's Treasury Secretary, uh, not Treasury Secretary, excuse me, Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker in the 1980s snuffed out inflation by raising rates to double-digit levels. Since then, due to technology, due to deflationary pressures in the economies, the 10-year rate has gone down from 14% down to less than 1%. Now it's kicking around at 1.5%, but inflation now is higher than it has been in the last 20 years. And incidentally, in Europe, last month's inflation was higher than it's ever been, ever. And if, and Europe still has negative yielding bonds. Something doesn't smell right, okay? So it's essentially all bonds, junk bonds. Um, in my opinion, it's all about price. And if you're not buying a bond at the right price, you're getting stiffed. And if you're making a foolish investment, you could call that a junk investment, meaning it'll be a poor risk return investment. So yes, you know, the old adage is there's a price for everything. Well, I don't believe the right price for U.S. 10-year treasuries right now is one and a half percent. Therefore, firstly, why would that not be the case? Well, when inflation's running at 6%, you know the math, you're, you're, you're earning a negative 4.5% real, real return, okay? The other thing is, 
everyone assumes the credit quality of the USA is still gilt-edged. It's not. The credit default swap markets are telling you that there's a higher and higher chance that the U.S. Treasury will not make full on their obligations. It's a real market out there. It's a credit default swap market. So it's not impacted by the Treasury. They're not in the CDS market, credit default swap market. They're not in there. And that's a market that's calculated on a daily basis between buyers and sellers of risk. Okay. So it's credit default swaps, essentially an insurance um, payment. Bingo, buddy. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. So and they were the things that pre, they were the, they were the instruments that foresaw the default of Lehman Brothers uh-huh. and Bear Stearns and the like. So how does the bond market get fixed? Because to me, it sounds like it's a broken market right now. I mean, it still works how it's yes. meant to work. But in terms of, in terms of earning a, a return, if if all bonds are essentially negative yielding, yes, on know, a real basis, on a real negative, basis, yes. and we know some people have to buy them, yes, because they're mandated to, right? But essentially, it it is a broken system. It's a fiat system that doesn't make logical sense. Peter, I don't know how it gets fixed if they do not let yields go to their natural level now. That natural level is open for debate, but Stanley Druckenmiller feels that the natural level for U.S. 10-year treasuries would be 4.5%. Again, it's trading at 1.5% right now. There's other people that argue that the Fed is not impacting the shape of the yield curve. And I just say, come on, guys. There's There's an elephant in the room that was purchasing $120 billion worth of bonds a month. A month. Tell me that's not impacting the Fed, excuse me, the yield curve. And if someone says it isn't, I think that you've never traded markets before, okay? There's bond bulls out there that are swear that, swear that it hasn't uh, impacted the yield curve. And I'll just go, guys, take your heads out of, your, out of the sand because supply and demand is what it is. And that's what sets the price of bonds. Okay, sorry. What's, what's stopping bonds... Uh, reach their natural rate of 4.5% Again, a Fed in the market buying $120 billion of it per month. Right. That's just the biggest buyer out there by far is in the market. And when you're a buyer, you're, you're soaking up sellers, meaning the, the way a yield rises, Peter, is the price goes down. And when the price of the bond goes down to reach an e- equilibrium level, the yield on the bond gets adjusted accordingly. So, as the price goes down, the yield goes up. And we'll do a quick bond math here. If a 10-year bond were to move from 1.5% to 4.5%, where Stanley Druckenmiller thinks it should trade, the price or principal trading value of the bond would drop by over 25% in one day. Now, it's not going to move there in one day, but it could move there in one year. You could lose 25% of the principal value of your bond when it's earning 1.5% annually. God, that's unbelievable, isn't it? It would take you your entire uh, maturity of the bond just to make the coupon payments back for the loss in principal value. Isn't okay. it crazy? Yeah. So these, this is bond math. And this is like people don't appreciate. So then you can even extend it to a 30-year bond where the, the, the impact of what's called duration is more than twice as severe. 30-year bonds would drop by over 50% in value. Five zero. You've lost half of your value of your bond portfolio. Oh, but it's a risk-free asset. 
Oh, it is, is it? And I could lose 50% of my trading value just because the market interest rate adjusts in an open market way. I don't want any of that. It's picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. Hold on, let, let me understand. So okay. if the US government wasn't buying up the bonds themselves, yes. the Fe- is it the Fed that buys them? Correct. Say, if the Fed wasn't buying them, yes. therefore there wouldn't be enough demand, so the rates would have to go up to fill you that demand. It. Yeah, It's funny because the thing with bonds, everything feels inverse. That's what it is because if if the price goes down, the yield goes up. Yeah. And that's your, you know, it's it's like a toboggan, not a toboggan, a teeter-totter, okay? And it's basically when yields go up or they're, they're allowed to rise to their natural level of supply and demand, the price of the bonds goes down. Because again, the bond is a contract with a fixed no, uh, amount of coupons over its term. The only way the yield can adjust is that the principal value of that bond falls in price so that you buy something at 60 cents on the dollar that matures at 100 cents on the dollar, but that adjusts for the lower coupons than the open market rate, okay? So that's, again, it's a, a, it's a teeter-totter, okay? You got your coupons, you got your principal, and it's bond math, and it can really confuse a lot of people. Don't overthink it. I'll just tell you, when I started trading in 2000, sorry, in 1998, 1988 rather, 10-year yields were 14%. Man, that's easy to make your bogey when you have a 10-year yield of 14%. Is it possible to get an 8% uh, uh, return in a pension fund when bonds are yielding 14%? Well, it's pretty darn easy, isn't it? You got the risk-free asset in the world yielding 14%. You got to be pretty good at losing 6% everywhere else in your portfolio just to come up with the 18% or sorry, the 8% number. Now though, CalPERS has the same assumed return of 8% even though interest rates are one and a half percent, which means they think equities will make up the balance, which means equities have to have double digit returns forever and ever. Guess what, people? Your pension funds are underfunded, okay? Don't listen to what the government's saying. They are underfunded because the bond portion will, the equity portion cannot make up for the lack of yield in the bond portion. So it is the pensioners who are going to be paying for this. They will not get their uh their anticipated returns in their pension funds, correct? So the pension funds are growing but losing purchasing power. The the actuarial accountants are doing headstands to try and pretend the funds are f- what's called funded. I've talked to a few of these actuaries and they are embarrassed and realize that it's almost impossible for the pension funds to be fully funded when 10-year rates are 1.5%. How much are bonds and bond rates uh, an indicator of the health of the economy? Good question. Like there's a lot of things go into the uh, calculation of the of the 10-year rate. If we think of governments outside of a normal corporation, let's think of what a normal corporation is. A normal corporation has cash flows, assume cash flows that will grow with the success of the company, the products of the company. 
that rate goes up and down independent of what the government rate is, okay? So you can have a U.S. 10-year at 1.5% and the high yield market itself is yielding around 4%, okay? So the, the spread is about 250 basis points between the two. But that high yield market, the spread will go up and down according to the health of that company. Flip that on its ear and say, is the government the same way? Strangely, when the government can print money and the economy is slowing, yields are going to come down because a slow economy means non-inflation, all the things that would cause yield to fall. The reality is, though, at some point, I think international bond investors are going to look at governments more like a corporation. What are the cash flows of the government that can satisfy the obligations in terms of interest expense as well as principal repayment of principal. And guess what the answer is? It's impossible. Yeah. It's over. You cannot possibly outgrow the debt spiral. It's mathematically impossible. And this is why I say fiat currencies will always have to debase because they have to print the money to solve the debt balloon. When your economy's not growing fast enough to meet your interest obligations and your principal repayments on your bonds, you got to print the money. It's got to appear from somewhere. If it's not appearing from your tax base, you got to print it. Well, if they were companies, they would be essentially bankrupt. Oh, listen, if the, I won't criticize the USA because I'm in the great state of Florida right now, but if Canada, if Canada, my home country was a, a rated as a corporation, it would be a solid junk bond borrower. Okay. Canada would be a junk bond borrower if it was rated on the same scales that corporations are rated on. Well, listen, if, uh, I mean, I've run, a, I've run a company, I've run companies. Yes. If I had a magic money printer in my back office, then- Wouldn't it be great? Um, I would never risk going bankrupt saying there at you home. I, can, you. I would always be able to pay my mortgage and Very buy my shopping if I had a money printer, but yeah. I don't have one. So all I will say is this, um, people have not yet done the math and they are still assuming that uh, governments have the luxury of going to an auction and that auction being fully subscribed. There's something called a bid to cover ratio in the auctions, which indicate how much demand there was for the auction versus how much was issued. And a bid to cover ratio of two times means there was twice as much demand as was issued. What happens if that bid to cover ratio starts falling and it gets closer to one times? which means there was only as much demand as the auction. Then the next people are going to say, gosh, we're getting awfully close to the demand not being there. Maybe I better sell some bonds and lighten up on my own bond portfolio and in anticipation of worse auction results. It starts its own spiral or contagion. I've lived these markets. It's not fun when confidence is lost in the issuer of a bond. I've spent my life trading corporate bonds, but trust me, there's no difference when a government is involved. Well, yeah. I mean, if I go back to thinking about Ray Dalio's video yeah. I've been watching on YouTube for the first time, uh, is it how the industrial machine works? But he talks about debt and credit. There's oh, yeah. always a balance. Yes. Whenever there's credit, yes. there's debt. And whenever right. there's debt, there's credit. At some point, they always have to balance. Correct. But when the government is issuing debt, yes. they don't have the credit to cover. Scary. Yeah. Yes. And that's, look, it's risk happens fast, okay? That's, you need to live with that understanding. You think it's all going to be fine until it isn't. And as soon as it isn't, 
it unravels really quickly. And we saw 6.2% inflation yes, quoted. Correct. I think everybody is in agreement. It is way higher than that. The US is currently double-digit inflation. Well, if you use the same formula that they used in 1980 to calculate the original consumer price index, it would be over 14%. Apples to apples. And I think we all know. I mean, yeah, we're experiencing it. it. Yeah. yeah. You, whether it's you're filling up your car yep. with, we say, petrol, you say gas, <laughs> whether you're going to Starbucks, whether you're going to dinner, yeah. everything is starting to feel really expensive. It's, uh, it's the reality that this is the first time in my, uh, my lifetime that I've experienced inflation like this. That's true. It feels like we're in a very unhealthy place. And it feels like, yeah, we're talking about it because I have a show and yes. you're part of a community and uh -huh. everybody, isn't it? But I feel like there's a lot of people sleepwalking through this. People, honestly, Peter, do not understand, including a lot of bond fund managers. The lack of understanding of bond mathematics is atrocious. Bonds have been in a 40-year favorable market to own bonds. That's now changed. Anybody managing a bond fund now has only experienced the positive about being a bond fund manager. This is a new paradigm for them. And old habits die hard, including the likes of Steven Van Meter, the bond king and everything. And he's going to outtrade this market. And I hope he does. But I just would not risk my uh, hard-earned capital to, out, to pick up nickels in front of a steamroller, okay? I don't want to risk earning $5 to lose $45. I'm just not going to do it. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, UX is super important to me. So when the Exodus team reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app and you know what? They crushed it. The experience is amazing, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends and my family. Now, the Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with Casa's multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of Bitcoin, but only move by signing transactions from multiple wallets. Ones that you get to distribute into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can reach out to me over email or drop me a DM on Twitter. I've been a customer for over a year and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. -A. Also, next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now the football season started, it's been a strange start to the season. Tottenham started well, but obviously they fell apart. Typical Tottenham stuff, and Liverpool are crushing it, but it's a bit tight up there. Other teams are doing very well. Now listen, with Sportsbet, you've got everything covered. Not only do they cover football, but they support tennis, motorsports, US sports, they even have esports. And for new customers, there is always a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, then please head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T.io. 
seems to me this is why recessions are important and trying to avoid recessionary periods, which while are you know, politically favorable, ultimately somebody's going to have to, somebody's going to be in power, somebody's going to be leading the country when the collapse happens. Like a collapse appears to be inevitable now. They are cyclical. Ray Dalio is very good at uh, at laying out the debt cycles. And yep. uh, there's long-term debt cycles and there's short-term debt cycles. Um, Could we argue we're in a super long-term debt cycle? No question. Because we've avoided the long-term debt cycle. Or, or is that what we are in? In my opinion, you started again with rates being at 14% and they came down to under 1%. In the case of the Uni European Union, they're at negative. So they actually went below zero. If you can explain to me the logic of lending someone $100 to get $99 back, please do it. But I'm afraid I can't explain that. And yet there's trillions of dollars of European debt that is trading at a negative yield. Well, well is it because what are their other options? Like if they leave it in the bank? How about being smart? I mean, you know, there's true. Some people are paying for the security of holding your asset in safekeeping and paying for that safekeeping. That is correct. But is it also, if uh, inflation just was 6, 6%, if you leave the money, if you don't do anything with the money, you're losing 6% in purchasing power. But at least if you've got a, a negative yield in bond... Oh, you're, lo you're losing more than you're 6%. Losing more than, hold yes, on. Yes. That doesn't make any fucking well, they, sense. Okay, thank you. You're right. It does not make any effing sense. Oh, I don't understand. I don't, Peter, correct, I don't understand. I, I know, and I could not explain this. If you told me when I started trading bonds over 30 years ago, there would be a time where a bond was negative yielding, I would have laughed you out of, you know, off the trading floor. But it's happened. Did, but do you, can you not even, is there no like reason you can, Attribute to this? Yes, uh, manipulation by by European bank. Okay, because yeah. they just want to try and uh, uh, enhance the economy by having yields that are so low that people will borrow money to uh, spend, you know, for capital expenditures. There are multiple cans being kicked down the road here, buddy. I've never been so bearish on bonds in 30 years. And I'm okay if I'm wrong. I just know I won't be, okay? Because it's only mathematics. That's what a bond is. That's why it's so beautiful. It's only mathematics. There is no subjectivity to a bond except for the fact that the, the borrower may not repay you. Other than that, it's 100% contractual mathematics. Okay, so central banks can issue bonds. Well, essentially, the central banks and the, the, the treasuries are, you know, they work hand in hand. Yeah. yeah. Um, companies can also issue bonds. Companies issue bonds all the time, correct. Is, is that a similar size market or is it a lot smaller? Oh, way, way smaller. Way smaller. Yeah. So total global debt is about $400 trillion. Holy shit. $400 trillion, correct. Holy shit is right. Of which governments account for the at least, you know, almost three-eighths of that, okay? The others are banks and high-rated corporations. And then there's lesser-rated corporations called junk bonds, which are a very much smaller. But total global debt, $400 trillion. What's total global GDP? You know, I just don't know. About $100 trillion. So total global debt is four times as large as the global economy. Right. Yes. Well, think about that first. Yeah. I, I Essentially... <laughs> You, it would be the same as you borrowing four times your annual salary, not collateralized by a house or anything. 
Hmm. Does any does a bank lend you four times the your annual salary, not collateralized by a house? Nope. Not oh, in your life. Only not with a house life. if it is collateralized. Correct. And with usually a decent deposit. Correct. Yeah. 20% down, you know. So this is what's credit markets are very interesting. They're no different than a, an equity market, except there's a lot less subjectivity to it. I always say, look, equity guys are so bullish, right? And bond guys are so pessimistic. Equity guys, oh, yeah, this this tree will grow to the moon. And bond guys are like, look, trees don't grow to the moon. And stop telling me that equities are, you know, I'm going to dictate what's happening in the world because total global debt at four times total global GDP is far larger than the equity markets. Everyone always looks to the equity markets to get an indication of how, how things are going. Stop it, guys. The equity markets are a subordinate claim to the debt markets and the debt markets are far bigger than the equity markets. Always look at the credit markets to judge the health of an economy. Okay. So let's talk about this volcano yeah. bond that uh, Bukele announced on stage yes. in El Salvador. Samson was there. Um, Were you down there? No, I wasn't. No? I couldn't make that one. Okay. I've been away for too long. Uh, to me, it seems kind of interesting, but I want your perspective on it. I know that El Salvador bonds have a 13.5% coupon. This one is a 6.5%. Right. The idea is they raise on the first bond a billion dollars, uh, dollar denominated, and they're going to offer, they're going to put half a billion into Correct. buying Bitcoin, half a billion into uh, mining infrastructure, as I Correct. understand. Um, and then they'll pay the 6.5% coupon. I think there's a lockup. I'd have to confirm that. But um, it's five years. It's five years. Yeah. My assumption is their assumption is Bitcoin will do its thing and you know, that 500 be, but million will increase in value. Yeah. And then after the five years, they will be selling off the Bitcoin. They could be. There is a participation in terms of the performance of the of the Bitcoin uh, price over that time in which the bondholders will participate in the performance of the Bitcoin price to the upside. And they won't be penalized to the downside, but I'll promise you that the price of the bond will go lower if Bitcoin doesn't do its thing. So the price, they it won't be a contractual participation in the price but the, excuse me, in terms of the uh, Bitcoin price, but the price of the bond will reflect the Bitcoin price. So the bond will be a derivative of Bitcoin? The bond is, there's two components of the bond. One is a Bitcoin option, correct? And the other one is a pure cash flow consideration on the credit worthiness of El Salvador. Or Bitcoin City. Let's be, let's be. Yeah, yeah. And the question is, are they ring fencing Bitcoin City from the El Salvador uh, counterparty risk? Okay. And that's where some of the technicalities of the issue can get into, uh, come into play. If they're able to ring fence the, uh, the Bitcoin City component, in theory, Bitcoin City could have a far higher credit quality than El Salvador as a whole. Uh-huh. These are some of the, issues that I'm not aware if they've been ironed out or not, but there's certainly an argument that the Bitcoin city and the thesis behind Bitcoin city could be a pretty attractive investment opportunity, right? Barring the, not even considering the performance of the Bitcoin price. Hey, you're going to build a mining infrastructure that's going to mine Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining is not you know, it's there's a component of it that's sensitive to Bitcoin price, but in theory, the difficulty adjustment, as you know very well, should allow miners to make money regardless of what the Bitcoin price is. Someone may look at that and say, well, Bitcoin City, 
mining infrastructure, passports, new people coming in to, to, to be uh, citizens of El, of El Salvador. Hey, I sort of like that. And is 6.5% rate there? Is that attractive for all of that optionality? There's certain lenders out there in the world that I think will say, give me some of that. So if the uh, if the bond is fully subscribed, yes, and during the period of the lockup that the Bitcoin just does a 5, 10x, like an amazing thing, it ends mm-hmm. up being three dollars $400,000 a Bitcoin, mm-hmm. those bonds are going to trade on the open market at a much higher rate than 6.5%. Correct, sir. So that means their price will, if they trade a higher rate, me, sorry, they'll trade at a lower yield at a higher price because the six and a half will be extremely attractive. So people will bid up the price of those bonds and the yield conversely will decline in yield and maybe that yield becomes 2%. So what do you think of this bond then? I think it's an awesome experiment in getting in... I won't say use the word circumventing, but in terms of putting more funding options on the table for a com- a country that's so far been hostage to IMF, uh, which should, how how do we say this politically correct? Uh, hostage to IMF posturing. They are trying to increase their own funding flexibility outside of the IMF uh, safeguards. I say that with quotes, IMF safeguards. Uh, there's other ways I could I could describe the IMF. When the IMF lends money to a country, uh-huh. is it it's just a loan? It's not just a loan because there are um, contingencies that, you know, uh, require, you know, certain benchmarks to be met and uh, covenants that in bond terminology, covenants that need to be met. Uh, and I'm not aware, I, I've never lent money to El Salvador, so I've never gone through any other covenants. But trust me, one of the things that's very restrictive about a ri- lending to a risky counterparty is the lender makes sure that the borrower is somewhat constrained into what they can do with the money. You know, do you have, do you have what's called cash flow sweeps where you get the money back? before they're able to spend excess cash flows on other projects. All these things are collateral, excuse me, are um, uh, covenants that exist in certain bond structures. I'm not aware of what the what the ones are for El Salvador, but I am I anticipate that the IMF has some pretty strict covenants in their in their bond package. Okay. I mean the talk is of El Salvador doing up to 10 of these bonds. They have to do one first. Sure. And and I would definitely say if one goes off don't flood the market, but if one goes off and the price performance of the bonds in the aftermarkets reflects good demand, then I would do another one, 100%. What do you think the risk is with these bonds? Because one of the things I like about it is mm-hmm. that it is, at least half of it is backed by Bitcoin. Honestly, Peter, I need to be very careful here. Um, this bond, in my opinion, is attractive for investors who do not have the opportunity to own Bitcoin outright. Okay. You are different. Okay. Now, and so am I. And then there's some whales out there that have so much Bitcoin at risk that they may actually want to go the other direction. And they may want to take some pure Bitcoin off the table and earn a a yield 
to a counterparty like El Salvador that they want to succeed, right? If this goes well, this is going to be good for the Bitcoin ecosystem. Well, I'm sure there's, I'm not going to call them philanthropists, but there's certain, certainly some well-wishing whales out there that might fund this project just to prove that this is possible. And stick a middle finger up to the IMF. <laughs> but nothing comes for free. I mean, you know, we are not a philanthropic organization. Uh, you know, when I say we, I mean the Bitcoin community as a whole. Um, you could not rely on that to, to, to continue indefinitely. So this is a bit of a litmus test. There's no question. Um, will you buy this bond? I'm not saying whether you will or won't, but certainly there's some people in the position who've been involved in Bitcoin as long as you have that would look at it and say, the greater good is that this succeeds for El Salvador. So therefore, I am going to help fund this project to ensure its initial success. I think there's a quite a bit of that that might come to the table. I agree. I think and not being the underwriter, meaning, you know, the Blockstream and, and, and Samson Mao's of the world and everything. I don't know. I haven't canvassed the buyer base, but I sure hope that they had done some pre-work on this to give them a level of comfort that this would be the case. Yeah, my assumption is they would have. Uh, I mean, I personally won't be buying it because I'm I'm not wealthy enough, but uh, I do support the idea. I hope I hope it's successful, but I hope it's successful for a different reason, uh, not just for El Salvador. I actually hope it's successful because if this works, this will highlight to other countries around oh, the world. There's another oh, alternative yeah, yeah, way. Yeah. And don't forget, it can't, then you got to be careful that you don't get everyone jumping into the same pool all at the same time, right? Because then it will ensure that there's over supply versus demand, meaning every single country wants to do this. All of a sudden you have $100 billion of desired uh, supply. Well, that's a lot. The, the market's not big enough to hold, you know, the whole Bitcoin market's only a trillion dollars. You're talking a billion. Well, that's one one thousandth. But all of a sudden, if it's a hundred billion, you're talking one tenth of the market wants to get absorbed into Bitcoin bonds. Then you're talking a big dilution. So you can't do too much. It's a it's a process. But it's a useful test. Honest to gosh, I really want this to succeed, and I really hope that the underwriters have done their best Wall Street imitation, where they would have gone around and canvassed a number of very key buyers and said, "On the QT, we're looking at bringing this to market." Can we put you in the book, an initial order book that would justify, I'm going to throw a number out. Wouldn't it be amazing if they had $600 million worth of demand prior to even announcing the issue? Because closing the gap then will be easily. And you want it to be oversubscribed, meaning you want it to appear that there was more demand than the issue size. And we can get into some of the technicalities as to whether there's a syndicate short on these bonds and all this good stuff. What's a syndicate short? It's when if you bring a billion dollar bond issue and the syndicate sells more than $1 billion, essentially settles the issue short, meaning they have to go back into the market and repurchase some of the bonds to satisfy that short. It ensures that there's a bid under the market and that the price of the bond, if it's issued at 100 cents on the dollar, may trade up to one or two, 102 or 104 cents on the dollar. Believe it or not, in bond land, that's huge, right? That 4% is a 4% return at time zero. Well, when 10-year rates are 1.5% and you can make 4% just because the price of the bond issue went up 4%, you know, from 100 to 104, that's a good day's work in the bond market, Okay. 
Interesting. Oh yeah. So these are all things that Wall Street will do. They'll have a syndicate short. They'll they'll have their pocket buyers. The pocket buyer will be like, okay, look, I'll put two hundred million in the book, and I'm good for another two hundred million in secondary market trading. Well, guess how coddled that buyer gets, right? How many baseball games does that buyer get to go to a year on behalf of the Wall Street uh, syndicates? Like, come on, that's how it works though, right? So, you know, and these are huge funds. These are funds that have trillions of dollars to invest in bonds. So do you think some of the Wall Street bond traders might take a look at this? I can't comment on that. I'd certainly, if I was in my old chair, would I take a look at it? 100%. In my old chair, I would have taken a look at it. Would I have bought it? I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have broken it down into its components, its pure cash flow characteristics, its Bitcoin optionality, and I might have gotten too smart by half and sold out call options on Bitcoin and covered some of this and done all that stuff that a hedge fund pretends they do, <laughs> and and then I, I could have been in the game. That being said, at my old seat, I would have been hopefully allowed to buy Bitcoin as well. And so you have to be careful. Is it a fund that's allowed to buy Bitcoin or a fund that isn't allowed to buy Bitcoin but wants to get Bitcoin optionality exposure? Why are these funds still not able to buy Bitcoin? Again, the investment policy guidelines. We talked about that at the beginning, right? These things are set by old men like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, okay? Time will take care of their old age, but for now, they are the people setting investment policy guidelines for pension funds. Right. Okay. Sorry. Help me understand that. Yeah. So it's not the fund itself. These are policies that are created outside by committees, of- By committees, pension trustees that set these policy guidelines. That is correct. So don't forget, let's say you're the, you're, you're the Chicago Firefighters Pension Plan. You have, on behalf of your pensioners, the obligation to try and fund your pension plan. You will farm out an an asset mix to specialty managers across the board based on an asset allocation plan defined by your trustees. So the trustees could say, well, the the Chicago pension uh, uh, firefighters, they're really risk averse. We're going to be 90% in bonds. Well, that stinks, doesn't it? But there are funds like that. And then there's other people that are like, look, I'm, I'm very, uh, I, I'm proactive. I, I, I want to take risk on behalf of my pensioners. And these guys might be the, you know, instead of the Chicago firefighters, let's say they're the, uh, the circus act, the Chicago circus, uh, circus guys, the trapeze artists. They take risk their whole life. Well, they might be 90% equities and 10% Bitcoin, right? They live with risks like that. So it's, 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 a, it's a balancing act across different, uh, pension guidelines uh, across different, uh, and and some of it is uh, regulated by the state as well because there is um, uh, pension plan guarantees by various states in in the USA where if the pension plan isn't fully funded, it will be subsidized by uh, various government entities. So there's a pension plan. What's the, it's the pension plan guarantee board or something like that. So a bit like the FDIC. Correct. Except for pension plans. It's no wonder the government's going to fucking money. Peter, there's just so many different moving parts in all of these policy decisions. And this is what a lot of Bitcoiners don't understand. Like a lot of, I love the Bitcoin community. They just don't understand how big money works. Okay. Why aren't they hundred percent in? 
Uh, well, because it doesn't work that way. It takes a long time to change these policy guidelines. A lot of the people who make these decisions, again, are people that have been managing money for 40 years. They don't understand how an iPhone works, let alone how the blockchain works, okay? And these are the people who are making the decisions. It does seem to me, though, that pension funds are almost the perfect vehicle for investing in Bitcoin because they have that long time preference. Bingo. The question is how much, right? And that's what we have to come down to. The wrong answer is zero. How much Bitcoin should they uh, own? Well, the wrong answer is zero. What is the right answer? And the Start right answer, one. well, Start at 1%. you got to get off zero. And, yeah. uh, borrowing from Pomp, uh, yeah, get off of zero. The right answer, in my opinion, somewhere between 10 and 20%. Okay, that's big. If it goes to 10 to 20% of t- all pensions are allocated to Bitcoin? We probably hit our plus 1 million. Easy. Yeah. Well, just do the math and you'll, you'll, you'll see the demand side of the equation. Again, if total, fi- I've run through this math with you before, but... If total financial assets in the world are $900 trillion, that's what they are, okay? All bonds or all debt, all equities, all real estate, all gold, commodities, fine art, store of value, total of $900 trillion. I think Bitcoin easily captures 5% of that market. What's 5% of 900 trillion is 45 trillion. What's 45 trillion divided by 21 million? It's over two, 2 million bucks of Bitcoin in today's dollars. But that's not even counting for okay. price slippage when a lot of people want to buy. How about this, brother? Yeah. It has to go through my price before it gets to 8 million bucks. So let's start with 2 million bucks, okay? And the point is, the way it gets there is when pension funds say, I got to get my 5%. Because 5% is a minimum. And what if they say 10%? Well, then... It's 90 trillion divided by 21 million, and all of a sudden it's four and a half million bucks of Bitcoin. See, they are the perfect vehicle for Bitcoin. They have long time preference. And by the way, what are their alternatives? They're pretty stinky right now. 10-year bonds, and gold is way better than owning a bond. And, And congrats to our friend Peter Schiff, okay? Look, Here's the picture of, uh, I'm going to put Shifty on his head. Okay? <gasps> Shifty's on his head because he actually stood on his head for once. Okay, Shifty, you're standing on your head. Okay, <laughs> he stood on his head because why? He actually appropriately called bonds return-free risk. That's a great expression. Bonds are return-free risk. Gold is better than bonds. Okay, so we're putting Shifty on his side now. Okay, because he correctly said that gold is better than bonds. But gold is nowhere as good as Bitcoin. So anyway, thank you, Peter. Love you, man. I love your son. I love everything that you try and do. But at the end of the day, you've been so wrong on your risk allocation because he was 99 yards or as we'll use the, he was on the, he was running for a try and he was on the, he was inside the 22 meter line and he's running down and he fumbled the, not the ball, but the, yeah, we call it a, the rugger, the rugger, uh, we call it the, ball. The, the ball, he yeah. fumbled it. What a loser. He knocked it on. Well, he knocked it on. Beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunate, but he has a great kid that's uh, that's going to make up for it. So. <laughs> oh man, I was uh, I was with Sailor a couple of days ago. Okay. We got into an issue you love. Oh, good. Bitcoin is digital energy. Oh, he well, he's the man. Yeah. So, I struggled with that as a concept for quite a long okay. time. I was like, "What do you mean, Bitcoin is digital energy? You know, you're mining the Bitcoin and you're selling it." 
how is that storing energy? It's, it's not, it's storing wealth. I still struggle. I, I understand uh-huh. why people want to sell it as that, but I don't 100% understand why it's digital energy. I guess it's easier for me as an engineer to appreciate that because I grew up with the law of conservation of energy, right? That's embraided in my, in my brain. Uh, energy can't be created or destroyed. It is the law of conservation of energy and Bitcoin proof of work is storing the value of somebody's time and energy to, to be consumed at some point in the future in a conservation of energy principle. And I hope I didn't use this on one of your podcasts and forgive me if I did, but I'll go back to when I was 20 years old. So over 35 years ago, I was working, one of my summer jobs was working as a asphalt shingle installer. I might've made $40 that day, pounding shingles in a hot summer, eight hours, five, $5 an hour. I made 40 bucks, 35 years ago. What do you think that $40 is worth to me today after I stored it for over 35 years? A couple of bucks. Oh, how horrendous is that? I can't even buy a beer for eight hours of work. Okay? Because again, the purchasing power has gone down to $6.80-ish sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, that's what fiat does. It robs you of energy. And this is key. If you understand that my time and energy was worth something in that hot sun, I improved the value of that house. My work energy went into that house, improving the value of that house. Then I put my, I was rewarded for that work energy and I stored it in an inferior asset that lost its purchasing power over time. So it's all money energy, but some is better energy than other. Interesting. Um, It should be, but it's not. So, Fiat is certainly not energy. Fiat, there's no conservation of energy principle with fiat. They can just make it out of thin air. You can't make energy out of thin air. Energy exists. And it's conservation of energy is the first law of thermodynamics. And Saylor says it because he's a rocket scientist and I appreciate it because I'm a mechanical engineer. And I know people that are as smart as Saylor. The difference with Sailor is he's a walking mainframe who can actually, com- he can, com- he can com- you know, communicate with a common man. Most rocket scientists are, you know, gibberish people. They speak in math and, you know, they get, they make funny jokes that no one understands because it's like uh, the square root of, of three. <laughs> like that kills me. Oh, fuck off. I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. But so Sailor gets it. He's like, uh, he's a, uh, yeah, he's a walking mainframe that, that, basically understands common man. Now, that being said, you'll say, okay, I still don't quite get the conservation of energy. Hopefully thinking about working 30 years in sweat, hot sun, you come to use that money 30 years later and it's worth nowhere near what you're purchasing, what it would have been when it was worth 40 bucks 35 years ago. So it's gold metallic energy? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Okay. How is it formed? It's mind. No. There's an, how oh, does it get formed in the universe? Supernova. There's lots of ways, but those things are high intensity energy things. Okay. Okay. There's scarcity value to gold. I mean, the beautiful thing about gold is you don't produce it. You don't put, you know, it's not like producing concrete. You know what I mean? Like you don't put some, uh, you don't put 
half a mixture of uh, stones and, you know, concrete and sand and water to produce concrete or cement rather. Your cement, sand, stones and water equal concrete. You can't produce gold that way. You can get gold out of seawater. You know that there's more gold in seawater than is on land. The problem is getting it out of seawater is uh, a very polluting arsenic and all those things. But yeah, that energy could get gold, extract gold out of seawater. Hmm. That's a big thing, right? Everyone says we're going to mine an asteroid. What the fuck are you talking about? Mine an asteroid. Just go to your backyard and suck in enough seawater and get the gold out of the seawater. It's true. Yeah, you can see it on one of the uh, documentary channels. Anyway, look, this is all good. I still am not dissing gold like uh, Sailor really does. There's a friend of mine, Larry Lawrence Leopard, or La- yeah, we interviewed Leopard. He's a he's brilliant. Such I love, a great guy. I love Lawrence, and I love how he manages risk. And there's just a different risk tolerance between Lawrence's clients and Michael Sailor's unit holders. In our show that came out today with Sailor, he calls gold the enemy of Bitcoin. Ah, darn. Um, I respectfully disagree with Mr. Sailor because most gold bugs, and I'm going to specifically call out a couple of them, uh, you know, Lawrence Lepard, uh, uh, Santiago Gold Fund, um, Brent Johnson. uh, These guys get it. They've done the homework. They understand that fiat is the enemy. Now, They've chosen a store of value that's $10 trillion. There's no doubt in my mind that Bitcoin will be far more valuable than gold. But if you ask me, who's the real enemy, bondholders or gold holders? I'm like, come on, don't even start. Firstly, bonds are 40 times the size of gold. And they're 40 times as stupid as the gold (laughs) holders, okay? Because they really don't know mathematics as far as depreciation or debasing of the currency goes. Fair, man. Fair. Well, listen, look, it's always a pleasure to have you on here. It's great to be here, guys. I mean, I want to thank your team and everything. Uh, It's nice to be face-to-face and uh, in uh, beautiful Hollywood uh, Beach, Florida. Um, I love this uh, state. I do. It's got some really cool bits and some really weird bits, and that's what I like about it. It's eclectic. It's uh, I I traveled down through the north of uh, of uh, so I, tr- I I drove from Canada down to uh, down to Miami. What? Yeah, yeah. How long did that take? Uh, a couple of days, like three days. That must have been fun. I stopped in some great spots, including Gainesville, Florida, where the University of Florida is. Uh huh. Man, that is a sweet town, and I I really look forward to going to a couple of football games there. Uh, I'm not going to live down here full time, but uh, I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm a property owner in the state of Florida now. Nice. And um, yeah, listen, Canada is a great country, but uh, we got a lot of we got a lot of wood to chop up there. Oh, are you kind of like planning your exit because no, it's a little bit no. weird? Um, I'm I'm optionality. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, optionalities. Correct. Okay. And here's the thing: I have a, a great wife that uh, she likes Bitcoin, but she doesn't love it. And if I uh, if I put everything in Bitcoin, I may not have a wife. So uh, she said, "Okay, put it in another hard asset." And I said, "Look, real estate in Florida, on a on a dollars to dollars basis, uh, real estate in Florida is quite attractive relative to real estate in uh, Canada." So well, keep that wife, man. Yeah, they, they keep the world going, man. They do, eh? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks again for having me. And at, I'll say one more thing. We talked a lot about bonds here. Um, bonds are the most important financial contract in the world. They're the biggest. They run all markets, okay? This is what people don't understand. When the credit markets get sick, 
all other markets absolutely get disastrously ill, okay? Why? Because credit runs the world in a capitalist system. I really want the El Salvador bond experience to be positive. I hope mm -hmm. it is. Uh, but regardless, that's $1 billion in the context of $400 trillion, 4,000 times as big. Oh, I guess it's more than 4,000. It's Anyway, it's, it could be 40,000 times as big. It's a big fucking number. It's a big fucking number. And that's the real elephant in the room. Please, please, please do your homework. If you own bonds and you own no Bitcoin, that's the people I feel sorry for. The gold holders? They'll be okay. They'll be okay. Get some Bitcoin. Yes, sir. Greg, love you, man. Good to see you. So, so, uh, so great, guys. Thank you very much. And I uh, look forward to, uh, to having uh, another chance to meet up in Miami on different occasions, right? We'll make it happen, dude. All right. All right, cheers. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, you want to reach out to me, the best thing to do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Okay, see you all very, very soon. <laughs>